Hey y'all, welcome back to Lethal. Let's talk about death row inmates. This week I'll be covering a Texas death row inmate. So today's story will be about a serial killer that terrorized Wichita Falls, Texas. This is right outside of Dallas. So get ready for a bumpy road. Hey y'all, so I have my wine and I'm ready to jump right into it. But before we get into this story, I'd like to cover some background about capital punishment. To be charged with a capital punishment and to be sentenced to death row, a capital crime has to be committed. So a murder is capital if the offender is in the following. 1. Murders a police officer, a firefighter, or EMT who is on duty, helping, or providing aid. 2. Intentionally commits murder while committing another crime. This would include aggravated kidnapping, burglary, robbery, aggravated sexual assault, arson, or terroristic threats. So for example, if someone breaks into a house, they sexually assault the victim and then murders them. That would fall under this. So number three, a murder for hire situation. So paying someone to murder an individual. So one example is if a husband hires someone to murder his wife which there is someone on death row, Texas death row, that is in there for that, and I did write to him, so hopefully we hear back. So four, commits a murder while escaping or attempting to escape prison or jail. Five, murder someone while they are locked up. So for example, that would be if someone murdered their cellmate. Six, murders more than one individual at one time. Seven, murders a child under 15 years old. And number eight, murders someone for retaliation of sentencing. So for example, a judge. Also, offenders under 17 years old cannot be executed. It's unconstitutional for someone under 18 years old when the crime is committed. So they will not be put on death row. Let's jump right into it. So I'll be covering inmate number 999331, Farron Wardrip. He has been on death row for 20 years and nine months. He murdered five women. Four women were murdered in Wichita Falls, Texas, and one woman was murdered in Fort Worth, Texas. So let's start with his early childhood. He was born March 6, 1959 in Salem, Indiana. His parents were George and Diana Wardrip. He seemed to have a pretty normal childhood. No physical or mental abuse was um, reported, and the highest education level he completed was 11th grade. He actually dropped out of the 12th grade, so he almost made it, but not quite. So at 19 years old, Farron packed a bag and joined the United States National Guard. After serving six long years, he was discharged for smoking marijuana, disorderly conduct, and going AWOL numerous times. He never deployed while he served on the National Guard. So March 1983, he married Joanna D. Jackson. She was 20 and he was 24. They were young and in love, and they thought they had it all. They had two children, and they had a pretty great life until the marriage took a turn. Farron developed a drug and alcohol problem. This started to affect not only his marriage, but his ability to keep and maintain a job, which was super important for him to provide for the family. Farron worked as a janitor at the Wichita Falls General Hospital, but he was quickly promoted from janitor to an orderly. This is a nurse assistant or healthcare assistant, so he pretty much helped the nurses on duty. This job didn't last too long, just like his other jobs. 
So his wife's parents actually would pay for their rent and pay for their groceries because he couldn't hold down a job long enough, and this was due to his addiction to drug and alcohol. His wife, Joanna, was tired of his crap. She couldn't rely on him for money or for anything to even help with the children. So December 1985, she packed her stuff up, packed the kids' essentials, and they took off. She then filed October 1986 for divorce. She would soon learn she married a serial killer who murdered five women. He targeted white females who weighed less than 120 pounds, under five and a half feet tall, and in their early 20s. His first murder was to 20-year-old Terry Sims. Terry attended Midwestern State University. She worked part-time at Bethania Hospital in Wichita Falls as an EKG specialist. December 20th, 1984 was supposed to be a normal day and it was supposed to be a fun girls' night. Terry and her coworker, Leza, both got off of work at the hospital around 11 o'clock at night. They rode together to a friend's Christmas party. They had gifts for their secret Santas or white elephant, you know, one of those fun festive parties. So after the party, they were gonna have a sleepover at Leza's apartment. So this is totally normal. Me and my girlfriends in college always had wine night and sleepovers and I totally messed up. So this is so normal for their age. So at the party, Leza got a phone call from work. She had to work the midnight shift at the hospital. Since the girls rode together, Leza dropped off Terry at her apartment. She gave her her key and she would be back the next morning. So she didn't mind if her friend spent the night at her house. I don't know if Leza's apartment was closer to the hospital than Terry's place was, but for some reason, Terry stayed at Leza's apartment instead of going home. So December 21st, 1984, Leza gets off of work. She gets home around 7.30 a.m. She remembers Terry spent the night, so she didn't have her key on her. So she knocked and knocked, no answer. She probably thought Terry was still asleep. So she went to the landlord and asked for a spare key. She walks into her apartment and it was a wreck. Everything was thrown around in her living room and she knew something awful had happened. Leza ran out and started screaming for her landlord. And she explained that her friend Terry spent the night, but she never answered the door. And whenever she walked in, her apartment was ransacked. Her landlord went to her residence, walked in and found Terry murdered in the bathroom. She was naked, laying in a pool of her own blood. So this is what we know what happened to Terry that night. So Terry had heard commotion outside, so she walked out to see what was going on. And I'm not criticizing, but let's go ahead and establish a rule. So never answer the door if you don't know who it is. I don't care if it's my parents. If I don't get a phone call or a text, I'm not answering the door. So let's get that straight. So life rule number two, don't go outside if you hear someone screaming in the middle of the night especially if you're by yourself just don't do it i just it's not a good idea okay so since we established those two rules everyone let's stay safe so let's get back into it so um terry walks out and sees Farron screaming at the sky he stopped looked over and saw terry outside he started to run at her terry ran into the apartment and closed the door but Farron, he was a big boy He's 6'6 and was over 220 pounds. He forced his way in, grabbed Terry, who was only 94 pounds and was 5'3. He threw her around the apartment. He then tied her hands behind her back with an electrical cord and he knotted it four times. She was putting up a good fight though. That's why he actually tied her up. 
So then he raped her and stabbed her repeatedly. There were eight stab wounds to her chest, three stab wounds on the right side of her back, and one stab wound on her left upper arm. Her face was bruised up. This could have been from punches or maybe banging her head when he was throwing her around. So one of the stab wounds actually punctured an artery, which was one of the reasons that caused her to die. The other stab wounds caused her lungs to collapse. So she most likely passed away anywhere from two to four minutes. When her body was examined, they were able to retrieve semen and they were able to lift a fingerprint off of her shoe. It took over 10 years to ID the semen and the fingerprint to Farron. He later confessed that he was on heavy drugs when he murdered Terry. He was angry at the world, so he took it out all on her. Victim number two was Tony Gibbs. She was only 23 years old, a nurse. She was five feet tall and weighed 94 pounds. So on January 19, 1985, Tony and Farron actually had known each other because they worked at the same hospital. So they had crossed paths multiple times. So when they saw each other at six o'clock in the morning, Tony didn't think anything of it. She offered Farron a ride, so he jumped in. I don't know if they saw each other at the hospital or at a grocery store. I'm not really sure where this occurred. But when he got in the car, something changed. He flipped out. He started screaming at Tony and forced her to drive to a secluded area, which was a dirt path that led them to a field. He took her clothes off, raped her, and then proceeded to stab her repeatedly. Her car was found abandoned by the hospital. This was only a mile away from Farron's house, and her body was found February 15, 1985. She was found in Archer County. This is a different county than Terry Sims was found, and this was only by one mile. So what this means is this is a different jurisdiction. So that means a different law enforcement agency was handling Tony's murder than Terry's murder. So when Tony was found, she was naked. She had been stabbed eight times, three on her back, three on her chest, and two stab wounds on her forearm. So these two murders are looking consistent, but it doesn't help that the two law enforcement agencies weren't working together and they were just different agencies. Semen was found and recovered. Later, we'll find out that the semen matched Farron's. When Tony was murdered, they looked into a man named Brennan Laughlin. He was originally accused of murdering Tony. He had been known to ride his motorcycle around the area that her body was found, and it didn't help that they went out together days before she was murdered. He took a lie detector test and failed it, so he looked like a pretty good suspect to police. So they ended up taking him to court, but his jury deadlocked. This means they couldn't agree on a verdict. All of the evidence was circumstantial. So they actually did test his DNA to the DNA found at the crime scene, and it did not match. So they were able to rule him out, but that means they didn't know who murdered Tony. Victim number three was Deborah Taylor. She was only 25 years old. On March 24th, 1985, she was at a bar in Fort Worth, Texas with her husband, Ken. Her husband left early, but Deborah insisted on staying longer, so he ended up leaving and she stayed. Farron saw Deborah from across the bar, walked up, and asked her to dance. She agreed, and they pretty much just hung out at the bar. Later on in the night, he insisted on driving her home, and she agreed. When they were walking out, he tried to make a couple moves on her, but she rejected him, which pissed him off. 
He got in a rage and ended up murdering her behind the bar. She had injuries to her face, and it was suspected that she was murdered by strangulation. Farron then dumped her body at a construction site in Fort Worth. Ken, her husband, reported her missing the next day, when he was unable to get in touch with her because she never came home. On March 29, 1985, she was discovered by two men that worked at the construction site. Police were unable to determine if she was sexually assaulted. Ken, Deborah's husband, had been the prime suspect of her murder. His family and Deborah's family had distanced themselves from him since they suspected that he murdered her. So I don't know if they had maybe trouble in their marriage. Why I don't know why the parents would think that he murdered his wife. But what is so sad is his family and her family pretty much shunned him out. And he ended up being an innocent man. Victim number four was Ellen Blau. She was 21 years old. She attended Midwestern State University, and on the side, she was a waitress. On September 20th, 1985, Ellen was abducted. This happened as she was walking to her car when she got off of work. Farron forced her into her car and forced her to drive him to a private secluded area. He forced her out of the car, made her take her clothes off, and killed her, apparently by strangulation. I say apparently because he doesn't remember how he killed her. He said, and I quote, she probably broke her neck because I was slinging her around, end quote. On October 10th, 1985, Ellen's body was found. Her body was in advanced decomposition. They were not able to determine if she was sexually assaulted. She had to be identified by her dental records. No DNA was recovered at the scene, unfortunately, in this case. The connection she had to Farron was that one of Ellen's friends lived at his apartment complex, so they had crossed paths. She had actually told her friend that he gave her the creeps. So always go with your gut because Ellen knew something was up with um, Farron. Victim number five was Tina Kimbrew. She was 21 years old and she was a waitress. Farron and Tina became friends because they had met at the restaurant she worked at. On May 6, 1986, Farron showed up to Tina's apartment. I think he showed up uninvited and I say that because of the way she was found, which you'll hear about in a second. He actually targeted her because she reminded him of his ex-wife. So when he got into the apartment, he trashed her apartment and ransacked it, and he murdered her by suffocation. He suffocated her with her own pillow. When she was found, her nightgown was pulled up and her undies were off and next to her on the ground. And this is why I think he showed up uninvited, because she was already in her nightgown. She was getting ready for bed. I think if he was coming over, she would have been dressed up in different clothes, you know. So when she was found, she had bruises on her face, her legs, and her neck. And there were actually no signs of sexual assault. On May 9th, he called police officers and he let them know that he committed the murder. He actually confessed to killing Tina Kimbrew, but he called whenever he was already away from the scene. He was in Galveston, Texas. He was actually sentenced to 35 years and he only served 10 to 11 years of that. When he paroled, he moved to a small town, became active in church, he got remarried, and he tried to make it seem like he was this good and changed man, but he had a lot of secrets in the closet that were about to come out. 
1999 was a good turning point for these murders. A cold case detective started to reinvestigate Terry Sims, Tony Gibbs, and Ellen Blau's murders. Just to remind you, no DNA was recovered for Ellen's murder, but John Little, the investigator, discovered the DNA recovered for Terry and Tony's murder was actually a match. So this meant that the same person had murdered those two. An investigator was able to link Farron to Ellen. When Farron confessed to Tina Kimbrew's murder, he also said in the interview that he knew Ellen Blau, which I don't know why he would confess this to police, and I don't know why, if he shared this information, why the police didn't start connecting the dots sooner and look into him. So they were able to connect all of the women to Farron. So they were there were a lot of coincidences, so the police decided to take an extra look at him. So the next step for police was to get a DNA sample from Farron, but they didn't want to spook him. So Farron had just been released for parole, and he did not have to give a DNA sample. So at the time, only inmates that were in prison for sexual assaults had to give DNA samples. So that's why they needed to get one from him, and that's why it wasn't in the system already. So investigators had been watching him, and one of the detectives stayed outside of the factory that Farron worked at. So one day, Farron was taking a break outside. He was eating his orange crackers and had a white cup that he was drinking out of. The detective saw this as his move. He put a fat dip in his mouth and started to walk over to Farron, but he tried playing it cool. And when he was walking over, Farron had just thrown away his cup. So when he walked, when the investigator walked up, he asked Farron, hey man, do you have a cup I can use as a spitter? And Farron had pointed to the trash and said, take your pick. The trash was full of the same cups that Farron had been holding. But luckily one of the cups had orange cracker crumbs on the lip, so bingo. The investigator grabbed the cup and they were able to pull DNA from this cup. The DNA was a match. Farron was arrested and confessed to all five of the murders. Farron was sentenced to death row in 1999 for the murders for the murder of Terry Sims and he had or was sentenced to three life sentences for the other murders. Farron has appealed so he can get his sentence overturned due to ineffective representation. He's still currently on death row at the age of 60. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate and review. Tune in next Wednesday for a new case and a new inmate. I'll see you then. Follow me on Insta at lethal underscore podcast. I am writing to death row inmates, so I'll start posting on there as soon as I start hearing back, and I will talk about it too on the podcast. See y'all next week. All the information used in this podcast was from Wikipedia and Murderpedia. Thanks so much for tuning in. I can't wait to see you next week.